This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture teaching is from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks for it. All right, good morning again. I'm Ted Sin, and uh, this is a new uh, sermon series in the New Testament book of Luke. And Lord willing, for a while, we're going to study uh, some of the unique passages of Luke. And so by unique, I mean this. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all accounts of Jesus' life. And so they're, all four of them are, are, are unified. They, they tell the story of the same man. But they're all unique because four different authors uh, selected different stories in Jesus' life and told them to four different audiences. So, so they're unified and yet they're unique in the same way that four journalists uh, could go to the opening ceremonies of the Olympics and provide a unified and yet unique account of what actually happened that night. So John, one of the other gospel writers, at the end of his gospel, he acknowledged that a historian, a journalist, that they have to be selective And what they report, this is what he says in chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then in chapter 21, John says, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would need to be written. So the point is this, each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had to select what they wanted to include. And so this series is about those, those passages that Luke picked to tell us about that no one else either knew about or chose to report on. So Luke 1, 1 to 4 is Luke's preface. It's his introduction to the book. It's his first unique passage compared to the other gospel writers. And Luke is different from the other gospel writers in this in that he makes his gospel obviously a letter. It's not just an account of Jesus's life. It's a letter to someone in particular. And so when he greets that person, uh, he identifies in these four verses uh, uh, his, his assignment, his summary, and his purpose. And so like any great author, Luke wants us to know before we read these 24 chapters what his assignment was. What, what did Luke tell himself to do and what did Luke claim uh, to do in this book? Uh, His summary. How did Luke summarize the entire book? What's the most important idea for Luke before you read the 24 chapters? And his purpose. Why did Luke write this book? So first, his assignment. What did Luke tell himself to do? Okay, what did he claim to do in this book? Luke uh, gave himself the assignment of writing a meticulous history. All right, so students today of Greco-Roman culture and history and literature, students today, not in seminaries and Christian institutions, but just students of that time and period, they're assigned this prologue, these four verses. And they're told this is a, is a great example of classical Greek writing. And, and they're also told this is a great example of an introduction a historian would give 
when he uh, 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 referred to his work as a history. In addition to Luke, these students, if you were a student, you'd be assigned uh, other uh, histories to read. And these other authors in their prologues would use a significant amount of the same terms and the same constructs. So, for example, if you look in your text, in verse 1, Luke says that he's not alone in attempting uh, to compile a narrative about Jesus. So this phrase, compile a narrative, was a frequently used phrase of historians in this period labeling what they were trying to do in their book. Also, it was common for historians uh, to explain why yet another account of certain events uh, was being written. Uh, The historians are very commonly somewhat apologetic. So if you look at verse 3, Luke's already said, listen, I I know that many have attempted to compile a narrative, but it seemed good to me also to do so. And and these historians, though, that they they, they didn't just uh, sort of apologize for yet another history, but they were convinced that this work was necessary, that it was adding something, that, that it was contributing something. And so they would give their qualifications in the prologue. So if you keep reading in verse 3, Luke explains why he has given him this self, uh, himself this assignment of writing a history. He says he wants to write an orderly account. He also says in verse 3 that he followed, it's the word for investigated, all things closely. So he's saying, uh, I investigated the writings of those who have come before me, any that I could get my hands on. And I've investigated the eyewitnesses, any that I could find. And he's basically saying, for some time past, I've been playing Sherlock Holmes. Very thorough, very meticulous, very Presbyterian. All right, Luke is the Presbyterian gospel writer. He's saying that compared to the other attempts at narrative, the ones that were in his hands, he's like, mine's better researched and mine is more orderly. It's more consecutive, you might say. So his assignment, a meticulous history. I'm making fun of Presbyterians there. Not inter- I, I am a Presbyterian. Actually, in the fall, Rue's going to teach a class that says we're Presbyterian, question mark. And the answer is, yes, we are actually Presbyterians. All right, but I'm making fun of Presbyterians for having to have everything neat and in order and meticulous. Now, interestingly enough, almost all scholars believe now that that Luke had Mark's gospel in his hand when he wrote. And and so Luke's not saying these other accounts of this history um, um, are worthless. He's just saying there's a lot more that needs to be said. So the gospel of Mark, if you've read it, is not as organized as Luke. It's like 16 chapters. Barely, it's the shortest of the four gospels. Luke's, Luke's gospel has 24 chapters. Matthew's has, uh, has 28. But Luke actually write, writes more words and more sentences by far. Uh, I didn't actually realize this. You guys probably learned this in children's church. Uh, I didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago. Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and, and as such, he wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. I would have thought it was the Apostle Paul. And what he's saying is he's saying, this was my assignment. I I gave myself the assignment of writing a very meticulous history. You say, well, that's interesting. Uh, Why belabor the point? What's your point? Here it is. Many of the most recent attacks on Christianity, whether it's by professors or by the media or by other world religions, most of the, the most recent attacks are all about the historicity of the Gospels. For a while, it was popular to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they were writing legends. It was popular to say they knew they were writing legends. And and the argument would go something like this. Their aim was not factual history. Their aim was inspiring legend. And so when we try and read history into these documents, we violate the intention of the author. Well, that argument 
has lost popularity in recent times. If you're reading that argument in a book, throw that book away. There are better arguments against Christianity. That one's old. It's been largely... Um, No one really brings that argument to the table because an 18-year-old freshman might buy it until they read Luke and they read a legend. I mean, it's hard to call Luke a legend when the author calls it history. And if you read any legend or any mythology in history, any legend or mythology in history of literature, none of them sound anything like Luke. So then, the more recent attack on Christianity is this. That the authors, they weren't actually telling legends, they were lying. So, so the present day critic will say the gospel accounts are a classic example of a will to power. So the critic will say it's the church leaders years later, decades later, maybe even centuries later. And they're writing about this popular and this famous historic figure, Jesus. And they're writing about it in a way to give themselves power and privilege and prestige. Well, unfortunately for the opponent to the gospels... Uh, They have to deal with the fact that most scholars, even now liberal scholars, will say Luke was written in the early 60s, the original 60s. And Luke was not written centuries later. But more importantly, Luke says there are eyewitnesses to Jesus. Just go and ask them. There are actually three generations. If you look at your text, there are three generations, if you will, mentioned in verses 1 through 4. Luke speaks of the eyewitnesses in verse 2. All right, these are the women and the men who live with Jesus. They heard what he said. They saw what he did. They asked him questions. They ate meals with him. They did life with him. Secondly, Luke says that these eyewitnesses have delivered to us these things. The us, at the end of verse 2, are those who were not eyewitnesses, but they had benefited greatly by the stories being delivered to them by the eyewitnesses. This second generation uh, uh, began to feel a need to put in writing the stories of Jesus that the first generation uh, was telling them because the first generation was beginning to die. And you can almost hear someone in the first generation saying, why do we need to write this down? I was there. I experienced it. I saw it. I witnessed it. It's in my heart. It's in my head. It's in my mind. It's in my memory. What's the point of writing it down? And the second generation was not having as much power Uh, conveying this information to the third generation, and they're like, we need to capture these stories. Uh, Papias was a Christian writer around 100 AD, and, and, and he wrote this about the apostle Peter. So this is the eyewitness. Peter used to adapt his instruction to the needs of the moment, drawing readily on whichever of his vivid recollections of Jesus was most appropriate for the audience to which he happened to be speaking. So Peter would just walk into a situation Something would pop into his mind about the real Jesus that he experienced. He'd be like, oh, what about this? And the second generation is like, wow, that's amazing. And then they would go out and try and say the same things, and it wasn't nearly as powerful for a response to just be given to whatever the context was. And so Luke and many others, we presume, although not uh, all of them have made it down through history, Luke began to capture and to organize and to present the events that these eyewitnesses experienced. The third generation, if you will, were people like Theophilus. They were converts, or they were the hoped-to-be converts of the second generation, and they didn't have direct relationship with the eyewitnesses. And Luke is claiming this. He says, I'm writing a history of eyewitnesses. He's saying to the skeptics, if you don't trust me, if you think I have ulterior motives, go and check with the people that were there and see if anyone contradicts any of these details. He's like, talk to the people who were there when Jesus brought shock and awe to the temple at age 12. 
It's like, talk to the people who were there when, Bre- when Jesus brought shock and awe to the temple at age 32. He's like, talk to the people who were there who could smell the perfume that the prostitute poured out on Jesus' feet and wiped with her hair. He's like, talk to the people who were there who ate that all-you-can-eat buffet that Jesus multiplied out of that little boy's lunch. Talk to the people who were there and heard Jesus say that he was God. Talk to the people who were there when Jesus prophesied in advance that he would die for the sins of the world, but that he'd be raised again on the third day. Talk to the Roman centurion who was there when Jesus died and he worshiped God because of the way in which Jesus died. He's like, talk to the apostles, the ones that are still alive. They place their hands in Jesus' side. He's like, go and talk to them. This is history. People experience this. Paul in Corinthians says that Christians are fools. And Christians should be pitied for being Christian if the resurrection didn't happen. Paul, Paul says, in other words, that there's, if there's no long-term gain, uh, we're fools for taking on the short-term pain in Christianity. And so Paul, in, in 50 AD, 17 years after Jesus' resurrection, he, he goes and, and he says, go and see the people who saw Jesus in bodily form after his resurrection. And he says, if Jesus was raised from the dead, we're going to be raised from the dead. He's saying there's long-term gain for this short-term pain. And he writes this. Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 Christians at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why does he give that crazy little detail about most still being alive? He's like, go check my math. Feel free to go and check my math. This is not a lie. This is history. Luke's assignment, write a meticulous history, not a legend, not a lie. We're going to learn in this series, this series through Luke, that God came in the flesh. He took on skin. He became a human. We're going to learn clearly that he lived a beautiful life, and then he died a horrific death in the place of sinners like you and me, and he did that so that we could be forgiven and adored by God. He was raised to life. He ascended to the Father. He sent his spirit to live inside of us, and he's promised to come back and take us to himself for an eternal, abundant Life And Luke is saying this to us. If that really happened, we might want to give it just a little more consideration than we currently have. And we might want to give some thought to the extent to which we've let that impact the ins and outs of our life. It's history. It's not just a story. Now, Realizing that Luke's assignment was writing this meticulous history, what was Luke's summary, number two, of those historical events? So you realize um, that, that every historical work is a summary of reality. So, so you can't write about every second of the opening ceremonies of the Olympics uh, from every angle. So journalists, historians, they have to be selective. But also, historians will generally give you a summary uh, of their history, which, again, so think that they're giving a summary of the summary of the events. Luke summarizes his summary with two phrases. Things accomplished among us, verse 1, and the Word, verse 2. The Word is one of the titles that's given for Jesus in the Gospels. So John uh, uh, started his Gospel this way. He's obviously referring to Jesus. It was our call to worship this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
In our text, the word is clearly Jesus. It's obvious as well. The 12 apostles, for example, they were eyewitnesses of, and then second, ministers of the word. First summary, Jesus. Second summary, things that have been accomplished among us. So this word for accomplished can be translated these ways, to bring to full measure, to fill up, to successfully complete a task, to fulfill a requirement. In fact, I, I personally wish that the translation would say things fulfilled among us as it is in multiple other popular translations. Luke says, my assignment was history. He says, my summary is Jesus's accomplishments. If you're studying Christianity, if you're trying to understand the Bible, here's a great summary. Jesus and accomplishment. In every other world religion, you have to do certain things. You have to accomplish certain things. You have to check certain things off your list in order to be okay with God, in order to be in community with God. In the gospel, Jesus, God, becomes human and he accomplishes everything for you that you could not accomplish on your own. He does all of this so that you can be okay with him, which is being okay with God and even delighted in by God. My son, Liam, he's three. He's old enough to say my turn, but he's not old enough to do or do well any of the things that his siblings are doing. And so uh, the other night, Maddie's my 10-year-old. Uh, she's playing Wii, Wii bowling, bowling on the Wii. And Liam walks in and he, he declares that it, it's his turn. And uh, the truth is, it was his turn. The problem is, he sucks at bowling uh, and it makes him really mad, okay? And so, like, the remote can go flying if you're not careful. So he's, he's like his dad, unfortunately. And so we uh, sports and, one, and we sports, one of the goals uh, in that is when you're playing as an individual is to succeed enough to get a pro rating. And a pro rating, uh, I believe, is, is to have a rating higher than 1,000. And Liam has set his heart upon being a professional bowler uh, in Wii. And so Maddie, uh, my oldest, uh, I would not have given him the Wii. I told him it's not his turn, uh, but she is more holy than I. Uh, she changes the me, which in that game means she changed the player to the one that looks like Liam, the one that is labeled Liam. And she, she changed it to Liam so that Liam on the, on the Wii could work towards his professional ranking. And then Maddie... I think brilliantly, this is, she did get this from me, uh, deceptively uh, uh, handed Liam the number two remote, the backup remote, okay? She kept the number one remote for herself. So Liam begins to play in his mind. His face is right up by the screen. He like does this to the screen to try and make it change like an iPad. So he, he is right there all up on it. And he has got the number two remote, the backup remote, the remote with no batteries in it. And... Uh, Maddie is just inconspicuously standing behind him, playing for him. In about six games, he's gone from a rating under 100 to a professional rating well over 1,000. <laughs> he is jazzed. Uh, he is pumped up over his accomplishment. He, he's, he's looking at me. He's doing some judo stuff. He's some, doing some dancing. And he's like, in your face, I'm a professional. <laughs> I 
A Christian is humbled. A Christian is humbled by the reality that they could never do it, but jazzed by the fact that Jesus did it for them. That game of we, in some ways, illustrates Luke's summary of his entire gospel. What we cannot accomplish, Jesus accomplishes. And then not behind our back, but right in front of our face, he dies for our lack and he gives us his accomplishment. Jesus and accomplishment. It's Luke's summary for the entire book. It's his summary of history. Chapter one, one to four, it's the introduction. Luke repeats this reality in the conclusion in chapter 24, proving that he's a brilliant author. Let me, let me just remind you of the last words of Jesus and the last conversation he has with his disciples. He says in verse 44 of chapter 24, if you have your Bibles, you can turn. If not, we'll get there eventually. He, he says, I told you this before I died. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the entire Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. Same word as accomplished. Jesus says, everything the Old Testament law required for relationship with God, I accomplished it. Everything the poets and the prophets looked forward to in the Messiah, I fulfilled it. And then in verse 46, Jesus says, the Old Testament told you this. If you would have just read it, the Messiah had to suffer. He had to die. He had to rise again from the dead. And listen to this, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And then he just reminds them, your witnesses of these things. Think about the concept of an eyewitness. The first generation of Christians didn't have to accomplish anything. They didn't have to lie about accomplishing anything. They had the incredible honor of watching Jesus accomplish everything among them. And from the start, continuing today, Christianity is not about achieving anything or giving the appearance of achievement. It's about seeing and believing Jesus, who is our achievement. Assignment, history. Summary, accomplishment. Purpose, certainty. Certainty. Okay, last. Luke gave a, a self-identified purpose. Okay, an, author, uh, an author's purpose was a very integral part of the ancient prologue and, and was often clearly stated, like our text, by the author. And so in our day and age, this is, this is lost. Everyone owns an inkjet printer and everybody has the ability to self-publish someone online or tweet and, or whatever it is that they want to do. And so this is lost in our culture. But, but in Luke's day, writing and publishing was very rare. It was very expensive, and the author had to justify the value of their work in a purpose statement. Look at verse four. That, so that, in order that, it's a purpose clause. You, referring back to the most excellent Theophilus, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's purpose, certainty for his audience. So in one sense, Luke's audience was Theophilus, but ultimately Luke's hope for audience was the entire Greco-Roman world. Let me explain. This is how publishing, if you will, worked in Luke's day. A wealthy patron would pay for a book to be researched and written, and the author would identify that patron in the prologue so that if the book became popular, in other words, the scribes started copying it and sending it out, uh, the patron didn't make any money off that, but they, they became uh, incredibly famous. 
And so Luke is identifying Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus. The only other people in the New Testament called most excellent are governors at the end of the book of Acts, the powerful Roman governors. This is a very polite form of address used for lofty people. And so Luke is writing his patron, but his ultimate aim is to be published and to have the history of Jesus, his life, and his accomplishments uh, on every coffee table in the Roman Empire. And I would say because a copy of Luke's gospel is in my bag that's going to India, he, he did quite well in his goal. What does Luke want for Theophilus, for the Greco-Roman world? What does he want for us? Certainty. A literal translation of verse four is this, that you may know exactly with certainty the things you have been taught. There are some, there's some conversations out there in the scholarly realm regarding the details uh, surrounding Theophilus. There's actually a, a, a more debate than you might imagine uh, as to where Theophilus was in his faith journey uh, when Luke wrote him. A lot of scholars believe that Theophilus was a seeker. He was a friendly investigator to Christianity. Some, some believe that Theophilus was a recent convert, and, and some believe that he was actually quite committed because he took on a, an incredible expense uh, to fund Luke for a while to research and write uh, more the, uh, of the New Testament than any other author has written. And the truth is, we can't possibly know where Theophilus was in his faith journey. But we know two things about Theophilus and his spirituality, and he has an awful lot in common with you and me. First, he had been taught, and second, he had doubts. He had been taught, and he had doubts. In verse 4, Luke says that Theophilus had been taught. It's referring to oral teaching. It's a technical term uh, for what the very early church uh, called the catechizing of a potential convert before they made a decision and got baptized. That, you see right there, that's where all the debate is. And so you can't know for sure if he decided to trust and follow Jesus and be baptized. You, 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 can, you can't know all of those debates. It's, it's, it's fun to think about it and talk about it, but you'll never have uh, any certainty. You, you can know one thing. He was taught about Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus, and, and he had some degree of doubt. Of course, you can see why it's enticing for commentators to try and figure this out, right? Um, because if they figure it out, then, then in their mind, they know the best audience for this particular gospel. And so the theory is, if he was a seeker, then we should probably use this gospel the most with seekers. And if he was a new convert, with new converts, etc., etc. But But I would submit that we don't need to know uh, the details regarding Theophilus, because every one of us Every person in this room, if you've heard any of this sermon, you've heard something about Jesus, and every one of us has doubts. And what every one of us needs, every one of us, including me, what we all need more than anything else is increased certainty about the accomplishments of Jesus. No matter where you are in your faith journey, what you need is increased confidence, increased certainty in what Jesus has already done. For those trying to earn their salvation, whether in theory or in practice, what we need is to see with greater clarity and intensity the accomplishments of Jesus so that we can rest from our attempts at self-salvation. For those 
um, um, who are wondering if they can truly and fully be forgiven for horrific sins, what we need to see with greater clarity is the beautiful life of Jesus, most exhaustively displayed in Luke than anywhere else. And then we need to see the horrific death of Jesus in our place so we can be forgiven and accepted. Luke's going to unpack this in so many ways over the next 24 chapters, uh, but I'll just give you a couple examples. For those enslaved to money, for those who love money, it's a huge theme in the Gospel of Luke. What we need to see with greater clarity is the accomplishments of Jesus, the one who was galactically rich, became naked poor so that we could be rich and richly clothed. The only way to be radically generous, a huge theme in the Gospel of Luke, is to turn from seeing money as a way to be in control and to turn from seeing money as a sign of accomplishment. And the only way to let go of money like that is to grab a hold of Jesus and his accomplishments and letting him be in control. For those struggling to share the gospel with their friends and with their neighbors, what we need to see with greater clarity is the accomplishments of Jesus for us. At the core of my not sharing my faith is uncertainty over what Jesus has done for me and honest doubts about what he can do for them. For me to be released into the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel to my neighbor is not a pep talk. It is not a commitment. It is to see Jesus and his accomplishments more fully and to become more certain that it's history. Here's the point. Every person in this room, seeker, new convert, longtime Christian, every person needs the exact same thing. More of Jesus than they had when they walked into the room. He was God. He became man. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He sent his spirit. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to the most beautiful life you can possibly imagine forever. It's not a legend. It's not inspiring. It is inspiring, but it is primarily history be believed. Concluding thought, don't miss the obvious. How did Luke believe that more certainty would come to Theophilus and to us? I think if we could be honest, we'll all recognize we have doubts, maybe in our heads, maybe in our hearts, maybe if we just inspect our lives, we have to confess we have doubts about the gospel because we're not living in line with it. What does Theophilus need? What do we need? Not more oral teaching, not more blogs, not more commentaries. All of those may be helpful, but what was crucial? Theophilus reading the word of God himself. Just don't miss the obvious. I almost didn't put this in the sermon because it was so obvious. I decided I gotta put it in at the end. Theophilus had heard teaching and he lacked certainty. And Luke said, verse three, seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you. This is what Luke is telling us. The regular personal habit of reading through the Bible, especially the Gospels. That habit, not the only discipline in the Christian faith, but that discipline has an unrivaled power in bringing certainty to our heads and our hearts and our lives. Let's pray to that end. 
Jesus, we thank you for your accomplishments on our behalf. We praise you for fulfilling uh, everything uh, the Old Testament required for communion with God. We, we thank you uh, that you came in order to be the focal point of history, and you said your moment of glory was being lifted up on the cross. We thank you that there were eyewitnesses. We thank you that there have been the faithful through the years that your church has continued to grow. We thank you that, that you have been so kind as to provide us with great uh, rational uh, reasons uh, for believing you. But even in all of this, we know that your word says belief in you is a gift from you. We beg you, Holy Spirit, to give us faith. We beg you, Holy Spirit, to give us more certainty. We beg you, Holy Spirit, to give us clearer sight of Jesus and all that he has accomplished. God, I pray as I do almost every day for my friends here that we would read your word as individuals, that we would get up, that we would fall under your word, that we would beg you for the sight of Jesus and that we would stay there until we see him. God, would you uh, give us the freedom and the joy and the peace and the gladness and the sacrifice that comes from seeing Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.